Amen. If you have a Bible this morning, turn with me uh, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And what we want to look at is the first 10 verses. Encouragement for godliness. And when you think about that, if you've been a Christian long enough, you realize, you recognize that there is no godliness in us. But it's because of Christ. It's because of the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through me. Now this really sets up as we began in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Remember that Paul was teaching the responsibility of the care and the compassion and the love toward the elderly in the church. But especially toward the widows, how we are to take care of them accordingly. And then Paul took it a step further. And he said we're also supposed to have that, that care and that compassion for the elders of the church, the church leadership, the responsibility of the church as we give of our finances. And we obviously shared this. If the finances are there, then a salary should be uh, available for uh, those in leadership. And so as we saw First Timothy chapter 5, now it brings us into 1 Timothy chapter 6, that place of godliness. And so Paul encourages Timothy in the area of godliness. Godliness must be part of my life, part of your life. But without Christ, there's ungodliness. Now, I wanted to give you some background on this. The word godliness in the Greek, it comes from the word, it says Eusebia, and it speaks of a person that has piety, a person that has holiness, a person that have, has reverence towards God. Now, again, there's no piety in me. There's no holiness in me. And I have no reverence in me until Christ comes into my heart. Until I come to that born-again experience. And as I begin to look at the Word of God, it changes me. It transforms me. As the Holy Spirit moves in my life and in your life. And he brings us to that place of godliness. A godly living in Christ Jesus. He brings us to that place of righteousness and holiness. And piety which is holiness also. But only through Christ Jesus. Now Strong's Dictionary of Greek Words says that the word Eusebia. The word godliness speaks of somebody that's devout. Somebody that's devout in their piety, uh, again, in their reverence, in their holiness towards God as a Christian, as a true believer in Jesus Christ. Your commitment uh, to this godliness, to this place in your life. There is a commitment. We, we commit to other things. Why not commit to God? Why not commit to His holiness? And as He uh, takes us through the steps... Now, Nelson, in his Bible dictionary, says this, Godliness means more than a religious profession or godly conduct. It also means the reality and the power of a vital union with God. Now, a vital union with God is that relationship. It's not religion. And basically, religion is going to kill you. But religion will save you. Religion brings you, or, or relationship, excuse me, will save you. Relationship brings you to that place 
of having this right relationship now with Christ Jesus, not religion. Now, I want you to mark a verse down before we get into our text, because when I first heard this terminology, how can I be righteous? I know who I am. I know what I am. I know what I'm capable of. And we have a sin nature. So how can I be righteous? And then I came to this word, you know, godliness. And bottom line, there is no godliness in me. And if you're honest with yourself, there's no godliness in you. But it's through Christ. It's through Christ in me. It's through Christ in you. And he brings us to that place of a godly living for him. In John chapter 15, verse 5, you know this verse. It's the teaching of the vine and the branches. Obviously, Jesus is the vine, and we are the branches, and we draw nourishment from him. We draw our salvation from him. But listen to what he says here. In, first, in John chapter 15, that is, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. And then I love this portion of the scripture. For without me, you can do nothing. For without me, you can do nothing. You see, I tried to be good. I tried to stop drinking. I tried to stop cursing. I tried to stop and, you know, fill in the blank that, you know, was your sin nature. And you come to the realization, you can't do it. I can't do it. But in Christ, without me, you can do nothing, Jesus said. I desperately need him. You desperately need him. And you'll hear this terminology. Well, you Christians, you use Jesus as a crutch. And I'll respond, hey, I need that crutch. In fact, sometimes I need two crutches. Because Bob will fail miserably. And so you look at this beautiful picture of godliness. It is only through Christ Jesus. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, I will abide in you. And that word to abide is so beautiful. If you stay in me, I will stay in you. You see, Jesus will not stay where he's not welcome. I mean, a lot of people say, I want Jesus. A lot of people say, I want to be a Christian, but uh, their lives don't show it. You see, being a Christian is not just coming here on Sunday morning or coming to a church uh, Sunday night service or, or coming to a Wednesday night service or, you know, attending all the prayer meetings or whenever the church doors are open. If it's not this church, it's another church. That does not make you a Christian. But it's a way of life. Christianity is a way of life. Christianity, the word Christian, is to be Christ-likeness. I want to be more like Jesus every day. And so he bestows upon me as I come to saving grace. He starts to work in and through me this godliness. And it's just a beautiful picture. And so I want to begin here. In 1 Timothy chapter uh, 6, Paul begins to encourage Timothy. In this life of godliness. And he deals in these first two verses. Paul goes back now to that relationship concerning a slave and the owners. And so when we speak of a slave, that's the employer or the employee. And the bosses are the masters. The bosses are the owners. The bosses are your employer. And so we have that relationship. But 
you see, Paul is bringing this forth. You have to understand something. At this time in Rome, there's about 6 million slaves. Now, we don't like the terminology slave. It's an offense to us. Well, I'm not a slave to anybody. But before I came to Christ, before you came to Christ, and I want you to put on your thinking cap, we were a slave to the elements of this world. We were a slave to drinking. We were a slave uh, to drugs. We were a, a slave to sexual perversion. We were a slave to lying, cheating, cursing. I was a slave to that. And so now I come to Christ. Listen, I'm a slave by choice. Nobody can force you into the kingdom of God. Nobody can force you to be a Christian. But I do it by choice. And so listen to these first two verses. Paul begins here, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 1. Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke uh, count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. He uses the word bondservant here. It's a different word than diakonia, but it's the word doulos. And the word doulos is, is deeper because it, it speaks of a, of a bond slave by choice, a servant, if you may, by choice. When we come to Christ in our relationship to him, it must be by our personal choice. Nobody can force you into the kingdom of God. Nobody can force you uh, into this place of godliness. It's by choice. It's by free will choice to serve God, listen, and to serve our fellow man. Only through Jesus Christ and the leading of his Holy Spirit can I do this. I'm reminded of that beautiful verse in Philippians 4.13 where Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Bob will fail. You will fail. But it's through Christ that I can do all things. Now the Christians at this time who were slaves, the employees, should give their masters, the bosses, their owners, full respect so that the name of God and his teachings will not be blasphemed. The word is defamed. You see, we call ourselves Christians, and then people see our walk, and it doesn't add up. You're one thing at church, but you're something else outside of the walls of church, be it at school, be it at home, be it at work, be it at play. You see, we're Christians 24-7, if you think about it. And if we misrepresent our owners, and who is our owner? Our owner is Christ. Then we blaspheme his name, we blaspheme his teachings. You know when somebody says, oh, that's a Christian. Yeah, I've seen him. I've seen her. It's a bad testimony. Now he says here to honor, to honor them. Remember we spoke about double honor that was given to the elders last week? Honor is, is costly. We spoke about a double honor that was given, a double price of the wheat, a double price of the oil, a double price of the medicine. And so a double price of the respect or, or, you know, the price that's costly to be in obedience. And so now he goes to the other spectrum. Look at verse 2. And then he says to the believing masters, the owners now, not the slaves, but the owners. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them, 
because they are brethren, but rather serve them. He says, because those who are benefited are believers and beloved, teach and exhort these things, Timothy. And so now you're not the slave owner, or you're not the slave that is, but you're the slave owner. And he says, if you're the master, if you're the owner, and he, you're a Christian, there's no excuse to despise or disrespect them. Work harder for our masters. Work harder uh, for the Lord. And so it's a beautiful picture. Now, I was thinking of this whole concept of, you know, the slave, the bondservant to Christ, the bondservant uh, to his master, because they did own slaves in these days. If you were here when we did the study of Philemon, if you have not done the study of Philemon, it's one book. Or one chapter, that is. It's a very short chapter. We broke it down into two teachings. It's available. Just sign up for it. But in the teaching of Philemon, Paul's writing a personal letter to Philemon. Paul knows Philemon. He's a rich man, and he has a runaway slave by the name of Onesimus. And lo and behold, he takes off, and he leaves his master. And we believe scripturally that not only did he leave Philemon, but Onesimus also stole from him. But the Holy Spirit had Onesimus to go to Rome. Paul was in prison in Rome. And there Onesimus hears the preachings of Paul the Apostle, and he comes to saving grace. And so Paul now knows Onesimus, the runaway slave, and he knows Philemon, the owner of the slave. And through the Holy Spirit, he tries to bring them back together. Talk about the teaching on forgiveness. Because when a runaway slave took off, according to the laws of Rome, you could have him incarcerated for the rest of his life, or you could have him killed. And another thing they would do to a runaway slave, they would brand them with a hot iron. Some kind of branding mark that probably was visible on the forehead. And then you would see they were a runaway slave. So Onesimus comes to saving grace. Philemon is a Christian. In fact, they were holding a church at his house at Colossae. And so Paul desires to get them back together. It's only through godliness in Philemon, the slave owner, and only through godliness in the slave, Onesimus, that God was able to bring them back together. And so here's what Paul is telling us that we are supposed to be an example of a Christian, be it an owner or be it a slave, if we've come to saving grace. Now, let me take it a little step further, verses 1 and 2. And here's the key that I wanted to give you. He says, what we just taught in verses 1 and 2, the word masters, is the general word kurios in the Greek, masters of slave, yet it can also apply, listen, Paul, through the Holy Spirit, uses a different word than kurios. And he uses a word of, uh, in the Greek called dispotes. And a dispotes was one who had absolute ownership and uncontrolled power over the slave owner. Jesus must have absolute ownership and uncontrolled power and authority over the one that calls himself or herself a true believer in Christ. Here I am, Lord. I'm yours. Do with me what you please. 
You're my master. I'm your slave. Now, a bond slave was by choice. You go over here to the prisons, you go over here uh, to the jails, and uh, these men, these women that are incarcerated, it's not by choice. They try to get away with something concerning the law, and now they have to pay the price. But we come to Christ. It's by choice. Nobody forces you into the kingdom of God. Lord, I want to worship you. Nobody forces you. It has to come from your heart. Now, when we speak about slaves and we speak about a bondservant, a bondservant was unique. It was a, a servant that was sold out for his master. Now, according to the, the law in, in the Old Testament, you served your master for seven years. And after the seven-year term, the law says you were set free. So your master would come and say, listen, you have served me faithfully. You have the choice not to leave. But for many of these slaves, they were under good masters. Masters that gave them land. Masters that gave them their own crops. They had a wife. They brought forth children. And the master said, just take them all in. But then when the time would come, you could leave. And most, if you had a good master, why should you leave? So you went to him and you said, I want to stay with you by choice. And the master would take you to the doorpost and he would place your ear on the doorpost and he would get a hold of an owl. That's what they described it in the Old Testament. It was a type of nail. And they would press it through your earlobe and then they would place a signet ring. And when you'd be in the marketplace, they say, you see that guy over there? You see that? Uh, that's a slave to Mr. So-and-so, the master, by choice. He had the freedom to leave, but he chose to stay. When we come to saving grace, according to Ephesians chapter 1, I believe it's verse, uh, verse 13, it says that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. And then God begins to work, listen, godliness in my life. He begins to build piety. He begins to build holiness. He begins to build reverence towards God and towards my fellow man. But it's only through submission in Christ. I want to share with you one more verse before we move on. Go to Ephesians with me. Chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. And again, this was an area that Paul was a stickler when it came to the area of teaching of being a bondservant or a bondslave by choice. Because you see, Paul was a slave to the law. Paul was a slave to Phariseeism. Paul was a slave to the Sanhedrin. And Paul comes to saving grace on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. And now, He's a slave to Christ by choice. So he knows what he's speaking about, what he's teaching as the Holy Spirit prompts him. And so in Ephesians 6, look at verse 5. He speaks about bondservants and masters. Bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ. And again, uh, you know, we're to serve our masters as we would serve the Lord. And that's the key. Not with eye service as a man pleaser, but as a bondservant of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to man. I do my work, listen, 
as unto the Lord. You do your work as unto the Lord. And sometimes, listen, that means you might have a bad boss. Sometimes that, might, that means you have a bad owner. But you still serve the Lord. And the time comes you can continue to move on. He goes on into verse 8 now. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or a free man. And you, masters, so he goes back to the owners, do the same thing to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. You see, again, going back to the book of Philemon, Philemon was a Christian. Onesimus, the runaway slave, becomes a Christian. Paul puts them back together. Forgiveness has to be there if you call yourself a Christian. If God forgiven me, Philemon had to forgive, you know, Onesimus. And Onesimus has to be in respect towards his master now. And it is a great testimony. And that's how godliness begins to work in and through us. Now Paul shifts gears again. And let's go back to our text. And he goes uh, to verse 3 now. To the conclusion. We're going to take it to verse 10 this morning. We're speaking about this area of encouragement for godliness. And Paul goes back to the warning now concerning the false teachers. They were evident uh, there in Ephesus. They were evident in the early church. These are some of the struggles that Paul had to go through as he was in prison, as he was writing these epistles. And there were these that were coming and undermining. Two basic groups. The Gnostics would come, and then the Judaizers would come. And Paul dealt with these. And yet, in their own way, they thought themselves to be godly. Paul thought himself to be godly as a Pharisee. But it was all about the law. It was all about his flesh. So now from verses uh, 3 to 10, he speaks about air and greed. Now, just to think of those two words, how can there be godliness? And, and, And you're about air. How can there be godliness and you're about greed? Now, this was happening in in the early church. Error and greed is still part of the church today. And so watch what Paul does here. And when we speak about error and greed, this is a part of the flesh. This is a part of the world. This is a part of our sin nature. And now we come into godliness. It has to dissipate. And it's... (laughs) A way of life through the rest of our walk with Christ. So he begins here in verse 3. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words. The word wholesome word speaks of a sound doctrine. Even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to the doctrine which accords with godliness. And so Paul's exhortation begins here. A warning if you may. Paul says the false teachers deny this wholesome teaching or wholesome words, or they deny sound doctrine. Yet these are the sound teachings of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. These are the very foundations for a godly life. We spoke about godliness. This is the very foundation of holiness, reverence towards God, and piety. It's to God first, listen, and then secondly to mankind. Here's the key. 
and what we have been teaching these past two weeks. How can I honor, as we shared in our introduction, the elderly uh, and the, the widows in the church, and then the elders of the church, the servants of the church, unless I first have the foundations of Jesus Christ in my heart, and that is through godliness. How can I honor my boss or the employer honor back and forth unless I first honor the Lord Jesus Christ? There has to be that example in our hearts. Now, if you're taking notes, I want you to study this when you get home. There's a beautiful example of godliness. And godliness brings us to the place of being a servant of the Lord. On your own, when you get home tonight or this afternoon, study the Gospel of John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, Jesus knows that his time is short. He's looking at the cross already. He knows the time is coming. In fact, in John chapter 13, he goes with his disciples and he celebrates Passover. And they break bread together. Now, Passover is what took place back in Exodus chapter 12. Now, what's interesting here in John chapter 13, Jesus knows that he is the Passover lamb. He becomes the complete sacrifice. And he comes into this setting. Now, you have to understand the culture. When you would come into a household in the early church to break bread such as they're going to, especially for Passover, you would have somebody in the house that would be designated as a servant. And that servant's job was to set you down before you sat at the table and to wash your feet with a basin of water. And then they would take a towel and then they would dry your feet and then anoint you with oil. That was customary. You got to remember, there were no paved roads. There were all dirt roads. And remember, they used open, uh, you know, sandals, no, no stockings, no socks of any kind. And so can you imagine the dirt and the grime that would be on your feet. And now, take it a step further. You have to clean this. That's a servant. The Bible says that it wasn't done before the meal. The Bible says that after they had broke bread, Jesus took off his outer garment, and then he took a towel, and he girded himself. The towel is a badge of a servant. And he began to wash the disciples' feet one at a time. Our Lord and Savior took on the example of a bond slave. How obedient was Jesus in his servant to man? He went all the way to the cross to give us life, a life eternal. Beautiful picture. Now, in the teaching of John chapter 13, the washing of the feet, be careful during the time of Easter week. Some churches have ascribed this now. Okay, let's have foot washing services. Jesus did this as an example. In other words, if I wash your feet, Jesus said, go out and wash others' feet. He's not speaking, you know, exactly to wash somebody's feet, but go serve others. Go serve in the capacity of a servant, one that has put on the badge of a servant. And so that was the ministry of Christ. And that can only be done, church, through holiness through piety, through reverence, which all of this adds up to godliness in my life and in your life. These false teachers were not of godliness. They were of the world. 
They were of ungodliness. Look at verse 4 now. Again, speaking of the false teachers, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes, arguments over words, and from which come. And look at this argument of words. What does it bring? It comes, it brings envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicion. And so these false teachers that Paul is encouraging Timothy about, who teach a different doctrine, he says that they're proud. Now, we speak of the word pride. If you've been here at Calvary Chapel, the word that's translated for pride is inflated bag of wind. And pride is the downfall of man. The best picture of pride is back in Isaiah chapter 14, where Lucifer says, I will ascend upon the Most High God, and I will take his, his throne five times. That's pride. And God said, Lucifer, you're not. And he was cast down. And he took a third of the angels, the fallen angels. And we see Satan now, and we see the demonic realm. But when pride sets in, in a man or a woman, such as these false teachers, it's nothing but an inflated bag of wind. And sooner or later, listen, the Holy Spirit will come by and he'll pop that inflated bag of wind. Oh, at one time or another, each one of us, including myself, we've been prideful. Oh, not me. But the fact we say, not me, it's pride. And then the Holy Spirit comes by and the conviction is further. So these who teach different are prideful and understand nothing of the doctrines or the spiritual teachings of God. And if you have a King James, the word obsessed is the word to dote. And the Greek word to dote, they are sick. They are sick. And it's a classical word in the Greek, and metaphorically, it speaks of mental illness. Now, Gingrich, uh, one of my Greek scholars that I study from, uh, he said this, the word to dote, uh, to have a morbid crave for disputes, seeking questions for personal use, or trying to take down somebody, desiring only to win the argument, these things that cause strife and the disputes amongst us. In other words, they will stand up to you and say, that's not what Jesus said. That's not what the scripture says. And they give their own interpretation. Paul says it does not bring, you know, nothing but envy, strife, reviling, and evil suspicion. The word envy, it brings forth jealousy. The word strife, it brings forth quarreling and fighting amongst the body of Christ. Now, if you've been a Christian long enough, if not in this church, somewhere else, there's always fightings and quarreling sometime or another. Jealousies sometime or another. It also will bring forth reviling, which is envy and evil, or evil, excuse me, and evil speaking. In other words, it brings forth blasphemies. Evil suspicions now. The base of those things that cause suspicion. In other words, questions after questions. God did not say that. God said this. And we begin to interpret it our way, or we begin to add or take away from the Word of God. We look at God's Word, it should be sufficient. Now, here's the key. Listen. When the Holy Scriptures come forth, when healthy teaching 
comes forth. When sound doctrine comes forth, there is no misleading of questions. But the Holy Spirit identifies with my spirit and with my heart, with your spirit and with your heart. Now, there's nothing wrong with asking questions. How else are we going to learn? But when you're asking questions to trip up people, when you're asking questions to bring forth your doctrine, then it's in error. Then it's in error. And, and honestly, uh, through the years, I, I just have learned. I, I'll preach the gospel. I'll teach the gospel. And I thank God for those that want to listen. But when somebody comes against you over and over and over and over, and, you know, and they want to argue, I don't have time for that. It, it's just for themselves, for their own doctrine. And, and I'll tell you, it happens quite a bit. And so Paul says, have nothing to do with this. Watch as we continue now. And he continues to speak about, in verse 5, uh, these false teachers again. Useless wrangling, that's what they're about. Useless wrangling of men, of corrupt minds, destitute, he says, of the truth, who suppose, I like that, that godliness is a means of gain. From such, Paul says, from such, Timothy, withdraw yourself. These false teachers, obviously not all of them, but the majority of them, these false teachers cause useless wranglings. Now, the King James uses the word perverse disputes. And basically, uh, this useless wrangling or perverse disputes, they bring forth constant irritation. Good translation. I was thinking about irritation. At one time or another, I'm sure you've all gotten a sliver. And depends where the sliver's at. If it's in your hand, it eventually will bother you. But you ever had a sliver in the bottom of your foot? And it's just like, well, it's okay. No, I don't feel nothing. But all of a sudden, you're walking, and you keep hitting the same spot. And it just starts to, what, irritate. Or maybe not a sliver. You ever had a pebble? Just a little pebble inside your shoe. And then you do this number, move it around so the pebble goes off to the side. But sooner or later, it still it gets back to the same, and you get mad until you take the shoe off, remove the irritation, uh, take the sock off, remove the splinter. But that's what these false teachers were about. These false teachers have minds that are corrupt, Paul says here in verse 5, minds that are corrupt, they're already destroyed. They're destitute of truth. They are kept back from the truth. In other words, the enemy has taken over their lives. They suppose, and here the word says, they think personal gain, financial gain is godliness. And here's the sad part. During the time of Paul and still today, they would use the Bible they would use the cross. They would use Jesus Christ as means of personal gain. What a sad commentary. This is not true piety. This is not true holiness. This is not true reverence of God. This is not godliness. But this is sin. This is something that irritates me quite a bit. When I see the church that it takes advantage of the body of Christ. Certain pastors, certain elders, certain, you know, I mean, there's false preachers out there. 
They might be on the radio. They might be on television. But that doesn't mean they're not right. I mean, they're false. And so we have to have spiritual antennas. And we have to know what's right and what's wrong. And so Paul says to Timothy and to the church at Ephesus and to us this morning, as the Holy Spirit is teaching, withdraw from such. That's a hard command here. Listen to what the Greek is saying. Timothy, depart from them. And tell those at the church at Ephesus, depart from them, revolt from them, refrain from them. In other words, get as far away as possible from them. Because if you don't, their sin nature will take you over. Their sin nature will take you over. Now, let me just mention, I I know all of you, if you've been a Christian long enough, you understand the faith and prosperity doctrine. Listen, you should never be sick. Listen, you're a Christian, you should always be rich. And bottom line, in Christianity, we have the poor. We have the middle class, and you do have rich Christians financially. But to say that everybody is to be rich, it's ludicrous. Go over here to the colonias, and, and what is it? you got Christians there. Go tell them, hey, you shouldn't be living in a you know, cardboard house. You're rich in Christ. Yes, I am rich in Christ. But be careful with those teachings. And you can so easily get caught up in the faith and prosperity. It's still popular. Years ago, one of my friends in Southern California, uh, Larry, he passed away now, so I can tell the story. And he got caught up into this uh, faith and prosperity. And and Larry had lost his job, couldn't find a job, so he was struggling. And and he got hooked into one of these guys, and on the television, he says, listen, by faith, write me a check. Send it to this ministry. And and the more you send, the more God wants to bless you. Larry sends a check for $1,500. He does not have $10 in his checking account. Does not have $10 in savings. But he stepped out by faith. You know that they processed that check three times? It showed in the back of the check. Processed it. Insufficient, insufficient, insufficient. And so what they're hoping is that one of those times there will be sufficient funds and they would extract their $1,500. And Larry had to learn the hard way. Yeah, you believe by faith. But if the money's not there, it's not there. And so these were some of the false teachers. They were for for personal, godly, personal ungodly gain, if you may. Now, he takes it farther. Look at verse 6. Then he explains what godliness truly is. Godliness with contentment is great gain. I love that. On the other hand, Paul now in verse 6, he encourages true godliness, true piety, uh, true holiness, true reverence to God is being content, listen, satisfied in God, in Christ, satisfied in his word, saying, thank you, Lord, I'm full, I'm complete in your word. That is true great gain. And we have to ask these questions. Are we sufficient where God has us right now? Now, there's nothing wrong with, you know, trying to get ahead. There's nothing wrong with perseverance. But are we content if God has us? Let me tell you, through the years, 
I've met some poor people that are Christian. And honestly, man, I see contentment. They're happy. Oh, they get by and, you know, they're eating their beans and rice, but you know what? They're content. Are, are we content where we are at? Are, are we grateful where God has me, has you? Or be careful with greed. Be careful when I become envious of my neighbor. Maybe it's your brother and sister, your biological brother and sister, and maybe they're better off than you. Be careful with greed that can set in. Or my brother and sister in Christ. I come and I see what they have. I hear what they have. Be careful that greed doesn't set in and envy sets in. See, we're so easily caught up. Well, they have a new car. I don't. They have a new house. I don't. They have, they have the boat. They have the, the place over here in Rio Doso. I don't. Be content where God has you. If God's given you an apartment, praise the Lord. If he's given you a trailer, thank you, Jesus. If he's given you a house, thank you, Lord. And right now, with our situation in the United States of America, there's a lot of people that are foreclosing. Listen, a lot of those are Christian. A lot of those are Christian that are filing bankruptcy. They have no other choice. And so be content. I love what he says here. Godliness with contentment is great gain. I'm going to read two verses to you. I want you to listen. Write them down because I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation. It is just so much richness in it. In 2 Corinthians 9.8, listen to what Paul says. God will generously provide all you need. It's not plural. It's singular. He'll provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. Not neat. So you can only afford a bowl of beans, but if there's a little leftover, give somebody else a portion of those bowl of beans. That's what he's saying. Now listen to this next verse. You should all be familiar with the, the letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Now remember, Paul writes this letter and then he thanks them. The Philippian church took care of Paul financially. Was it one time or was it continual? But Paul was a tent maker by trade. He didn't take a salary, if you may. He wasn't against that for those that were in ministry. But he says to the Philippians, thank you for your finances. Listen to verse 11 and 12. He says, not that I was ever in need, again singular, he says, for I have learned how to get along happily, whether I have much or little. Can we say that? Can I go back to the days that, you know, it was tough in the ministry? Can we go back to the days where Mary and I used to get on our knees and pray for $5 for gas? You see what I'm saying? It's a tough place to be. Am I happy whether I have much or little? Verse 12, I know how to live on almost nothing. This is Paul. Or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or an empty stomach, with plenty or with little. You see, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. That meant financial gain for Paul. Paul was a doctor of the law, if you may. 
Paul belonged to the Sanhedrin, the 71 elect of Israel. They process and they push the rules and regulations of Israel. Then all of a sudden, after the road to Damascus, Paul has nothing. Many scholars and, and historians believe the reason we don't see Paul with a wife, she either died or she left him because she could not handle Paul without finances. Paul went from riches to rags, the opposite. And he was able to be content. Again, one commentary said this about verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Listen to the commentary. Godliness, which is piety, holiness, and reverence, is a true treasure from God. It is a true treasure from God. Now, how can I do this? Go back again to John chapter 15, verse 5. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. I need Christ. And he gives me godliness. He builds godliness in my life, in your life. Now let's go back to our text. Look at verse 7. And I tell you, verse 7 is so precious. And then Paul's speaking about his contentment. I'm content. I've learned to be hungry. I've learned to be full. I've learned to have, learned not to have. And then he says, for we brought nothing into this world. And it is certain we can carry nothing out. Now, we got to turn here. You know where I'm going. Go to the book of Job, and let's go to chapter 1. Job is the first, you know, patriarch that I thought of. And that's not that others didn't suffer. And I'll tell you, I've studied the life of Job, and I've been in ministry long enough. I have my wife. I have our four children. Uh, They're not living at home anymore, but, you know, two of them are married. The other two are, are working and such, but they're still our kids, and you're concerned. You're worried. And I want you to put yourself in Job's spot. What if somebody came to you with the news that they're bringing to Job? He lost everything. Not his life, but he lost all his prosperity. And then he lost all his family. Are we willing to, verse 7, we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Now I'm going to go through Job chapter 1, verses 13 through 22, and I'm going to do some paraphrasing, so I'm going to kind of read it quickly, and I'm going to leave some of the words out just, just to bring the context. You can go back and study it on your own. But one day Job's sons, daughters, were eating and drinking wine at the oldest brother's home. A messenger came to Job and said, Your oxen plowing, your donkeys feeding by them. The Sabaeans raided, and they took them away. They killed the servants. I escaped to tell you. And so let me set this up now. All these servants that are left, they brought in the news. The servants were one right after the other. Job never had time to mourn until the conclusion Now, I can't imagine somebody coming one after the other and bringing you bad news. Listen to Job now. In verse 16, then another came and said, 
The fire of God fell from heaven, burned up the sheep and the servants, and consumed them all. I alone have escaped to tell you. While uh, he spoke, another came and said, The Chaldeans raided the camels, and, and they took them, killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then another comes and says, Your sons, your daughters were eating, drinking wine at your oldest uh, son's house. Suddenly a great wind from across the wilderness struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, you get up to this point and it's just frustrating. This is a true story. It happened. And again, I put myself in this place. Each one of us at one time or another have suffered loss. God forbid, but sometimes it's our own family member. Some of us maybe have lost jobs. Some of us have maybe foreclosures on us. I mean, it happens to Christians. Can we be like Job? This is a test for me. It's a test for you. Because notice how he concludes it. Now everybody comes in, and servant after servant, and I alone am here to tell you this. In verse 20, then Job arose, and this is the Jewish manner, the culture. He tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground, and he worshiped. I said, Lord, would, would I consider, hearing such bad news, would I consider worshiping you? That's what Job did. He took a time to mourn. He took a time to rent his clothes. He took ashes, and he just sat there, and he worshiped the Lord. The Jewish custom of lamenting, mourning, and grieving, but he worshiped the Lord. And then he gives us the, uh, the verse that answers to verse 7. Job said, Naked I came into my mother's womb. Naked shall I return there. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this... Job did not sin nor charge God with this wrong. Oh, man. In verse 20, he's worshiping the Lord. You know, I brought this up many times, that old preacher that said, when we get to heaven, we're not going to see you halls. And so he says here, we, we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can take and carry nothing out. The Lord took all his prosperity. The Lord took all his family. And remember, when Satan asked for permission, God said, do all that you're going to do to him, but don't touch his life. And then we continue to read the book of Job, and God gives everything back to him. A double fold. I don't know. I can honestly tell you, I don't know how I would act if my children were to be taken. That's a hard place. I believe that God knew. Listen, he knew Job's heart. He knew Job's heart. And so when the time comes, whatever the situation in your life, in my life, God knows our hearts. He knows what I can handle. He knows what you can handle. But can we say, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. In fact, if you continue in the book of Job, 
His wife said, curse the God that you serve. Look what he's done to you, Job. Radical statement. Now we come to the conclusion. Let's go back to our text in verses 8, 9, and 10 now. And again, he's talking about how the provisions that are made for us. In verse 8, and having food and clothing, having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. You know, in all reality, I mean, who doesn't like a good cut of meat? I mean, if you're a steak eater, come on, uh, Lord, provide a good cut of meat. But what if the Lord provides bologna? Well, it's not what I wanted, Lord. You know, it's not a New York strip. It's not a porterhouse. But I'll be content. I'll be content. Put a little salsa on it, make it taste a little better, you know. (laughs) And having food and clothing, with these shall we be content. So what is Paul saying here? God sustains his own. God sustains us. We need to trust him, church. Now, if you're taking notes, I want you to mark this verse down. We're not going to go there, but Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 through 34. The disciples have concerns, have worries for their care. They're going to serve God. They're going to serve in the ministry. And I remember reading this years ago when I was going to come into ministry Lord, how are you going to sustain us? I mean, I had a comfortable life in Southern California. We had our house in Southern California. Lord, you're going to sustain us here. And those were, I mean, I had three kids when we came here. We had another one when we finally moved here. And I can testify after all these years, God has sustained us. But there in Matthew 16, again, Uh, Matthew 6, excuse me, in verse 33 now, I just want to share this. Because they're asking, Lord, our concerns, they're valid. Yes, they are. In verse 6, or chapter 6, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things shall be added unto you. In other words, we have to put God first. In everything, we put God first. And so, God is going to sustain us. The the words that he uses here in verse 8, and having food and clothing. The Greek is telling us that God sustains us and he covers us. He sustains us with food and he covers us. Be content, church. The word to be content, it's sufficient, Lord. Let it be enough. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Then he goes into verses 9 and 10. But to those, it goes back to the false teachers. But to those who desire to be rich, fall into a temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. People who lust, the word to desire, who lust to be rich, fall into temptation, fall into adversity, fall into evil, and are trapped by many foolish and harmful, hurtful desires of lust of the flesh, that plunge, listen, plunge them, drown them, sink them into death and damnation. Now, listen to the, to the conclusion here. If they're not careful, death and damnation turns into eternal hell. You have to be content with God. 
In Matthew 16, 26, we've shared this verse in the last several teachings. For what profit it is to a man or to a woman if he or she gains the whole world and loses his or her, her own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? I was thinking of certain people, celebrities especially, and I went to a website and I just drew four names. I believe most of us know these names. Celebrities that have occurred hideous deaths. If you've ever watched Saturday Night Live, John Bellucci was a headliner for many years. Very popular. At the age of 33, he died. And then years later comes another gentleman by the name of Chris Farley at the age of 33. And he wanted to mimic John Bellucci. He also died, and both of them died of an overdose. Recently, I saw a documentary on Chris Farley, and that's who I was thinking of. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? Chris Farley had attended over 10 rehabs through his short life because he was only popular for several, just a few years, a handful of years. This man was crying out. And everybody tried to help him. But the enemy had him. The enemy had him. He also died. Kurt Cobain, very popular among the young people still. Rock and roller all the way. At the age of 27, took a shotgun and took his life. He wrote about this. He wrote about the despairs of his life. And I think all of us, know the story of Elvis Presley. I was surprised. I didn't know at the age of 42 he died. thought it was later. Drug abuse. And these were drugs that were prescription. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, to desire the riches? And I think about Elvis Presley. He started in the gospel message. He was a gospel singer. He knew all those songs. The enemy never plays fair, church. Never plays fair. Let's come to the conclusion now. Look at verse 10. For the love of money. Be careful with those that mistranslate this verse. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The love of money. You see, money is not the root of all evil. We need finances to sustain ourselves. God provides, you know, our educations. God provides the, you know, the ability of our hands. And we work sometimes in a trade, you know, a profession. Or we go to the university and God gives us a mind. And so we get a degree. And God gives us these to sustain ourselves. But it's the love of money. It's the love of money that becomes the root of of all kinds of evil. And some people that crave money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves, Paul said, with many sorrows. You think of these celebrities, if that's what they went for. It's obviously that God gives us the finances uh, to sustain ourselves. But when it becomes the love of money. And so Paul's speaking about godliness. It's a way of life. 
It's something that we take, you know, to our grave and we go home to be with the Lord one day. I desire Christ in me. I desire to live a, a godly life, a holy life, a righteous life. And I can't do it, neither can you, without Christ. I desperately need him. And so Paul's encouraging Timothy. And in the midst of that, you've got the false teachers. They're in it for personal gain. If you look in scripture, personal gain speaks of filthy lucre. It's just for me, nothing else. And you'll do everything in your power to get there. We see what's happening in our United States of America right now. <laughs> I mean, we've done it to ourselves. The greed of man. Now, I don't know about you, but I enjoy talking to elderly people. And it, there's still some around, but my grandma and grandpa, they were part of the Depression. It was not an easy life, but they were sustained. During World War II, some of you, your grandparents, my mom and dad were part of that. And my mom recalls that, you know, they were rationing during this time. The ladies, they had to give up their hosiery. They couldn't have nylons because they needed it for the parachutes. Can we do that today? Our kids, they don't understand a victory garden. They don't understand raising chickens. My grandma, she always raised, you know, uh, rabbits. They multiplied, so we had plenty of rabbits. Our kids know one thing. I'm hungry. Let's go to Al Paseo. No, we got some beans here your mom made. No, I don't want any beans. I've arrived. You see? Can we go back to the simple things? Can we go back? When's the last time? Don't raise your hand. When's the last time we canned anything? Canned what? When you can go to Albertsons, right? When you can go to Sam's, we're spoiled. Godliness will bring us to that place to be content in where Christ has us. Let's stand. We'll end with a word of prayer. Father, thank you, Lord, for the teachings that your spirit has given to, to Paul in time past to, to share with Timothy to the church at Ephesus. And here uh, in the 21st century, we're able to glean from it. Thank you, Lord. Minister to our hearts, dear Jesus. And Father, if we have not been living a life of godliness, then Lord, maybe we need to repent and come back to our first love, which is Christ. Or maybe we have no concept of godliness at all because we're still not born again of the Holy Spirit. I pray that if there's anybody here this morning that does not know Christ, don't leave here without Jesus. You need to come to that born-again experience. Father, speak to the hearts this morning. Encourage each and every one of us to live a godly life. And it's only in Christ Jesus. Bless your beautiful people. Bless the offerings this morning. As you've given to us, we give back a portion. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.